before we jump into the main sermon, I want to give just a brief um, acknowledgement of Mother's Day. And we recognize that for many, Mother's Day is fraught with a, a mixture of emotions. For some, it's a reminder of loss and what could have been. For others, it's a delight that is shared with the ones that we love. And for many, it is both of these. And even in this sort of bitter combination that can exist, it is good and right for us to pause and to give thanks to God for our mothers and to give thanks to our mothers for the investment and role that they have played in our lives. And so again, whether this is our mothers or our grandmothers or our wives or our spiritual mothers in the Lord within the church, And then we'll jump into our sermon, okay? Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning and we do give you thanks for the gift of our mothers. We're thankful for the physical life that we have and the nurturing and the care and the prayers that they've given for us. And Lord, we do pray for them. We pray for those mothers who are not yet Christians. Lord, we pray that you would work a work of grace in their heart, that you would help them to see their need of trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of eternal life. Father, we pray for mothers that you would give them purpose, help them to see the calling in which you've given to them, and that they can trust you with that, that you would grant them the wisdom that they need to live their lives, in particular to fulfill this calling of being a mother, that they not be tempted to rely on their own strength and own wisdom to mother well. And Father, we pray that you would bless their relationships, relationships with their husband, with their parents, with their children. Uh, Lord, with all the relationships that you've given to them, that your blessing of your grace and your presence would be upon them all. And that, Lord, you would bring her joy as she lives her life before you. And Father, we pray that, that, that mothers will find an, an ability to find their delight in about to you, knowing that you can care for them beyond even the care that they can show. And Father, we do indeed pray that you help them to find contentment, the contentment in their life, in their station as they face the struggles and hardships that can come along with their calling as mothers, or just the general difficulty that we face in life, that they would find contentment in you. And find within you the ability to endure the calling and the difficulties that come with their life. Lord, point their eyes to you. And Father, may their heart find true joy and satisfaction by resting in Christ. 
It's in his name we pray. Amen. After visiting four or five stores, I found myself staring at the sign. And the sign said, one pack of toilet paper per customer. And as I waited dutifully for them to unload the pallet and I received my package of toilet paper, I made my way to the checkout line. And as I was standing there, I thought to myself, how did we get to this point? If you had asked me five years ago, Seth, there will be a day where you will spend half a day trying to find a store that had toilet paper. And then as you await to find that toilet paper, you will have a little bit of anxiety about whether there might be a fight breakout as someone unloads a pallet of toilet paper. How did we get to that point? And the answer to that is uncertainty. People were fearful. They heard there's a shortage on toilet paper, among other things, because of the COVID pandemic. And so they began to act out of that uncertainty, out of that fear, and thought of themselves. But if we could have gone into the future at that moment, and we could have got, brought those individuals in that store to the present day and showed them how we're living today, this is going to be the end of what this episode in the life of our country looks like. I hope when they would have seen that everything's going to be okay, that they would have acted differently when it comes to purchasing toilet paper. You see, knowing how it's going to end, having certainty that in the end everything's going to be okay, allows us to live in a different way in the present. If you had today's knowledge in March of 2020, you would have acted differently throughout that episode. And that idea plays out in almost everything that we know, right? If you are going to go watch a movie in the theater, you don't want spoilers, right? You don't want to know how the movie ends because if you know how the movie ends, it's going to take away the experience. You're not going to be scared when the character that you like, is their life is threatened, right? Because you know if, the, they, if the, out at the end they survive and everything's okay, you're not going to, be, you're not going to feel that emotion. No, I say everything's going to be okay in the end. There's no reason to be nervous here, to be worried about what's going to happen. We already know, right? For some of you, like myself, maybe that seems like a calming thing. But the good news is, when it comes to our lives, we do know the last chapter. And thankfully, it's the best chapter, and it's the longest chapter, compared to what we live in this life. And this idea of knowing how things end affects how we live in the present day is what Peter, the apostle, is using to motivate and to remind the Christians that he's writing to of how they should live in the here and now. The passage that Chad just read forms what's called an inclusio with a passage earlier in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Verse 11 and 12, Peter writes this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles 
to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that is, the non-Christians. Keep your conduct among them honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of your visitation. And so Peter is returning to that theme. He's concerned about how these Christians conduct themselves, how they live their lives. And he's saying back there, remember, you're a sojourner. You're, you're an alien to this place. This isn't your homeland. You're just passing through. You're on a journey somewhere else. And that ought to affect how you live. And when we come to chapter 4, verse 7, Peter introduces a new thing. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, right, because the end of all things is at hand, you ought to live a certain way. So as Christians, when it's the end of the world as we know it, how is it that we can be fine and not lose our marbles, right, when things are happening that we're not, we don't understand, how's all this going to turn out? And the answer for Peter is to talk about the end times. <laughs> and this discussion is not something I would have necessarily thought of, right? But his point is, is everyone else is sort of losing their minds about things. You know how it's going to end. You know it's ending with the return of Christ. And so therefore, you ought to keep calm. Keep your We are able to do this. We are able to keep our things together. So the end of all things is the, that glory and dominion, that is the power to reign, belongs to Jesus, not for just a season of time, but forever and ever. So what this world, when people ask, what is this world coming to? It's coming to the universal reign of Jesus Christ, that he will exercise power and dominion over all things. Now again, just like in a movie, right, there's going to be ups and downs to the characters, some hardships they have to overcome. That's just what makes a good story. The same is true of our life. We know what the end is, the reign of Jesus. All glory and dominion belonging to Him. And that's happening because He was raised from the dead. Back in chapter 3, verse 22, Peter mentions this. He says that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to Him. So Jesus is going to reign with all dominion and power. Why? Because he was raised from the dead. And being raised from the dead after that, his father saw him fit to reign, and so he subjected angels and powers and authorities under him to be ruled over. So when the end of the world is at hand, all coming to an end, we as Christians feel fine because... Okay? 
That's the goal we're aiming at in looking at this series. So that's sort of a broader understanding and introduction to this, right? The last thing on God's agenda is to send His Son back. That's what Peter means when the end of all things are near. We don't know if it's tomorrow. We don't know if it's 3,000 years from now. But we know that's the next thing God's going to do. That gives us assurance, though, that the end of all things means blessing and, and living with Christ under His reign forever. That gives us a calmness because we know how it's going to end. It affects how we live in the meantime. But what I want to do for the rest of our time is to focus on what it means to serve others in light of the fact that the world is coming to an end. When we think about this sermon, I'd summarize it this way, that when Christ returns, let us be busy serving others. Because you see, in the grocery store that day, most people were not thinking about other people. The end of all things is at hand. And the first thought they went to is, I need to take care of myself. i got to think about me, myself, and I. And maybe you're lucky, they maybe care about you because you're in their, in their family. Their attention was selfish. It wasn't others-oriented. And partially either because they aren't Christians and don't have any of this worldview, or they were Christians but weren't thinking and acting based on their identity, knowing that ultimately, even if they weren't unable, unable to wipe their rear end with toilet paper, their end was secure in heaven, right? They, 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 they didn't compute in their head. So what do we do? What does a life of serving others look like? Well, there are a couple of opportunities for service that Peter lays out in this passage. And the first one, again, was a little bit shocking to me, but that is to pray with awareness. To pray with awareness. And we see that there in verse 7. To the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now when it's the end of the world, most people don't feel fine, right? They do things that if things were normal, they would not have acted that way. They lack self-control. They lack clear thinking, right? Because they're, what has made them feel safe has been taken away from them. Because in all honesty, having three meals a day and having your bank account full and all those things, those aren't truly helpful things once this life is over. So it's a false security that it, that it often gives to us. But that sober-mindedness and that self-control is how we as Christians are to conduct ourselves. We're to be sane and we're to be sober in how we think. And Peter's playing on that when he uses the phrase there, sober-minded, because earlier in chapter 4, he says there in verse 3, the time has passed. The time of the past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, that is, non-Christians. Living in sensuality, passions and drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And so Peter's making a contrast. He's like, those who don't understand that the end of all things are at hand, that Christ is returning to either save those who have trusted in him or to judge those who have rejected him, you're going to live differently. You're not walking around 
drunk, you have a sober mind. You have a clear way of thinking, and that's altering how you live because this truth has sobered you up. And he's speaking there literally about being sober, but it's broader than that, right? He's saying don't live your life as though you're drunk spiritually, making foolish decisions, right? You see someone who's drunk and they do dumb things. Why are they doing that? Well, because they're drunk. Why are people ignoring all these truths that God's given to us? Because they're spiritually intoxicated. And they can't walk straight. They can't see straight. Because they're in darkness. And Peter's saying, that's not you. You know the end of all things are at hand. Therefore, you're going to live differently. You're going to live a life that's marked by self-control. That's marked by being sober-minded. This point. So rather than acting out of turmoil and confusion about what's going on, Peter says we have to think rightly. We have to keep a clear mind. And this is nothing new to him. Earlier in this chapter, or this book, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, he made the comment there, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope on the return of Jesus. And as a result, you know he's going to be coming. Your hope set up, you're going to be self-controlled. You're going to be sober-minded in how you live your life. The Christian is called here to, to accurately to perceive the reality that Christ's resurrection has brought about something. It's brought about the last days. It's brought about the last stage of what God is doing on the earth. And so we want to live in contrast with the lifestyle that's been described there in chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. And what's interesting here is that one might expect clear-mindedness to be necessary. Peter's concern about being self-controlled and clear-minded is that you can pray. Not that you can have your plan of escape or your plan of action when everything's falling away. He wants you to be able to pray rightly and, in, and informed on this from a biblical standpoint. The knowledge that Peter's readers were living, and as well for us, in this final stage of God's redemptive prayer should motivate us to pray, not call us to a fatalism. That whatever God's got planned is going to happen, case sera, sera. That's not Peter's philosophy. And that shouldn't be the philosophy of any Christian. And rather, he's saying, the end of all things are at hand. You need to be self-controlled. You need to be sober-minded so that you can pray rightly because you rightly discern what's taking on and you, you want to respond to it in a way that honors God. And you're going to need to pray and ask God to help you to do that and to help you navigate all the things that are happening to you. So this call to pray doesn't lead us to fatalism, nor should it call us to abandon our responsibilities in the relationships that we have with others and the society at large. It's not the response to the end of all things is at hand. God will take care of it, fatalism, or an escapism that I withdraw from society, I withdraw from other people and their relationships. Rather, the knowledge that there's only one thing left in God's plan of redemption, the return of Christ... When we rightly apprehend that, will motivate us to a prayerful engagement. 
with the things that we see going on around us and in the lives and praying for the people that God has placed in our lives. And this is a needed reminder because you have to remember that Peter's readers were being persecuted for their faith. Because they were Christians, people were targeting them. And so think about that. How difficult would it be to pray when others' reactions to your faith are hostile? They're hostile to you, and that hostility is jeopardizing your social standing in that society. It's jeopardizing perhaps your livelihood. forget the reality of Jesus Christ's victory. And just like that, the people, if they could have seen today, back before the pandemic, when they were acting crazy about toilet paper, they would have acted differently. And when you lose sight of that, the end for us is Christ's victory. Share in that with Jesus forever and ever. Compared to eternity, our short years of 80 years on this earth are a blimp. Blip. We have to keep that in mind. But it's easy to lose that focus when all this difficulty we're facing, and so we forget to pray. We forget to reflect on the one who is our true source of hope. And as a result, when we take our eyes off Christ's victory, we will begin to behave and make decisions contrary to Peter's command, and we might be tempted to return insult when we are insulted. The second opportunity to serve is not just an, an opportunity to prepare our hearts by praying with an awareness of what's really going on, but we have the opportunity to love with grace, to love with grace. Notice what he goes on to say there in verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Now again, Peter here is talking about the love within a church. The love for other fellow Christians. That's his focus here. Doesn't mean we shouldn't love other people, but his focus is a month within the community of faith. And he's saying that love should be earnest, it should be real, it should be genuine, and it should be relational. Love one another. It's specific people, not just sort of this general goodwill that you offer to all humanity. That's not what he's after. He's after about real one another, life on life, sacrifice for one another. When all things are at end, when Christ returns, we want, to see him, we, we want Him to see us loving one another, excuse me, serving one another. And one of the ways we serve one another is by loving with grace. And we need this reminder because this love for one another will be stretched to its limit by the demands that are made upon it. Right? This is why we don't want to think about others in times of crisis. We want to think about just ourselves. But that's not what Christ calls us to do ourselves that loving one another is a call to caring for people in their needs. And that care, when it's offered in a right spirit, will increase our affection for the people that we're caring for. This love is stretched primarily 
because of the people we're called to love. It'd be easy to love people if people were easy to love, right? But they're not. Within our own congregation, Someone who's always grumbling. Complain, complain, complain. Someone who seems to always be happy. Man, it just makes me mad. How do you love somebody? Always sees the cup half full. Someone who shares different interests, different politics. They share different parenting styles, education choices. They make different choices that you think are wrong, but you've got no... Scriptural evidence to say what they're doing is sinful. It's easy to avoid those people because, again, it's hard to be kind to them, to not want to quarrel with them. But when it says to love one another, it's important. It's hard to love someone who seems to always be so spiritual that they're really a dull to be around, to have fun. Or someone you think isn't spiritual enough, and so if you spend time with them, they might rub off on you in a negative way. Whatever the scenario it is that we find, or the reasoning we come up with of moving away from people, distancing ourselves, whatever justifications we roll around in our mind, the answer to all of that is, above all, love one another earnestly. Why? Since love covers a multitude of sins. Now this passage doesn't mean that love somehow forgives sin in itself. It doesn't possess that power. We know that God pays for sin. He atones for sin. And the fact that love covers sins doesn't mean that we never confront sin in someone's life or in the life of the church. We have other places that talk through that. Matthew chapter 18 goes in great detail of what we should do if if a brother or sister has offended us. But what he's talking about here is you can't live in in a loving church context if of every little wrong that someone does against you, you make a big deal about it. Right? Our society has created a word for this and people actually make a lot of money off of it. It's called a microaggression. Right? If you've ever worked with HR department, you know, it's a problem. You get in a business or a company or any workspace or a family where no one can overlook any offense or insult, but everyone has to be talked about and addressed, and we've got to fill out the paperwork, we've got to work through the process of every microaggression. You're going to have a company that's full of bickering and argument, and they're not going to get anything done from a business standpoint, or whether it's in a family context, or whether it's in a church context. And Peter's answer on how to deal with microaggressions is love covers a multitude of sins. You don't want someone following you around with a notebook writing down every little thing you do wrong and nitpicking you. Therefore, love others as yourself and don't do that either. Pretty simple. I I could make millions as a consultant to secular companies here. They wouldn't like it, but it's what the Bible says to do. Love covers a multitude of sins. Where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses and some large ones are readily overlooked and forgotten. 
Now, if you get to the point where you can't do that, you do need to pursue a conversation with that person. Don't let bitterness build up in your heart, right? But by and large, you ought to be exercising yourself to the point where you learn how to overlook when people do things to hurt you, whether it's a sinful thing or whether it is a, 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 just a personality quirk that the person has that makes them maybe perhaps annoying in your eyes. But when love is lacking in a church or a family or any context, every word is viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding. And conflicts, as a result, abound from that. When you're constantly, oh, what are they, what are they, they said this, mm, I, can, I can read between the lines on that. Don't do that. Love believes the best. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7, goes over what that love is. It's patient with people. It's kind. It's, it's, willing, it's willing, as I said, to, to believe the best about what someone says or does instead of taking the negative interpretation to it. But loving one another not only means overlooking, but it also means not responding in kind. right? Not, not giving in a, to a, a tit-for-tat response that when someone does something, I'm going to respond just in kind to it. And then that's just going to build up the, the fighting and strife within a congregation. Peter's point is, look, that's what the world does. Back in chapter 4, he talks about how they malign you because you don't do what they say. But within the context of a Christian community, it is loving one another. And our love covers a multitude of sin. Love means treating others in the Christian community in such a way as to promote unity and to avoid or overcome behaviors that destroy relationships. And the fundamental characteristic that enables a Christian community to survive while the end is near is the willingness and the ability of its members to live in this way. Not only to pray with awareness, but to love with grace. The third opportunity that Peter points out that we have to serve others as we await the return of Christ is to welcome, sort of sadly chaotic about spiritual gifts in a number of ways. We actually created spiritual gift inventories. I don't know, maybe a number of you have participated uh, in such interesting uh, discipleship. But the reality is we don't have a spiritual inventory in the Bible. Uh, and so when we think about gifts, a lot of times we've gotten off base in how we think about that. A spiritual gift is really any talent or ability which is empowered, empowered by the Holy Spirit and able to be used in the ministry of the church. Right? So there can, a lot of times people try to divide this into natural gifts and spiritual gifts. No, 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 no. Every gift is from God, right? And therefore, if it's empowered by His Spirit, it is a spiritual gift or talent. You shouldn't divide it that way. Everything that you've been given an ability to do, you should put to work in some form or fashion to serve the Lord Jesus. doesn't mean it necessarily has to happen within the context of a church service. Okay? We need to broaden our understanding a little bit about these gifts. And he talks about this here in verse 10. As each has received a gift, and so the implication there is that everyone has, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. 
as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So when we think about these gifts, there are really two specific categories that Peter uses. You can find other lists, lists of spiritual gifts in the writings of the Apostle Paul, but what you'll notice if you ever compare those lists is none of them are exhaustive. This list, this list has certain things. This list over here that Paul writes as well, it might have some carryover, but there's things that he leaves off that were on this list, and there's things on this list that aren't on this list. So what we have to be careful is thinking that there's an exhaustive list somewhere. There's not. That's why these spiritual inventories really failed a lot of people. It's because they think that's all the gifts there are. But the reality is we have all types of gifts and talents. We want them empowered by the Spirit and used for the ministry towards people. That's a spiritual gift. And we ought to be using it to serve one another. So there are two broad categories that Peter gives here. That is, one is speaking God's Word. And this can be different areas of speaking, right? We can think about preaching and teaching. We can think about singing songs to one another. We can think about conversations that take place one-on-one as you're speaking God's truth in the life of somebody. Peter talks about these speaking gifts. And he uses the, the phrase there that whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Okay? And so he's given that phrase there. What does that mean? Well, is it, a, is it a warning against sort of imposing your own ideas or just speaking merely human wisdom, right? Speaking the oracles of God. And so it's saying, don't speak anything but that which God has spoken, right? Or is it a reminder of the sacred nature of what's taking place? Like you're uttering God's very words, so you need to speak in, in such a manner that reflects the seriousness of what you're doing, right? Ultimately, we don't fully know here. I think both are true, but ultimately what Peter's intention here is it's a little bit fuzzy. I sort of take it this way, that there's a promise that God will, in that moment as you're seeking to speak for Him, He will recall to you the truth He has spoken that you've stored up in your heart, Right? And so as I go about to speak God's Word to someone as a means of service to them, I want to speak that in such a way that I'm relying upon God in His Word and in His Spirit to call to memory that Word to speak it in the moment. Okay? That's what I understand Peter to mean, speaking God's Word as one who speaks the oracles of God. And so there are speaking gifts. And then there are serving gifts. Okay? serving God's people. He mentions that next. Whoever serves, verse 11, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Right? And that's why I mean here, I, I take there to be a parallel. If you're serving, you're serving by divine provision, the strength God provides. If you're speaking, you're speaking by divine provision, the words that God has supplied. So whether you speak or whether you're serving, you need to speak the words of God and you need to serve in the strength that God supplies. What's interesting here is I think too, a lot of times people can get too focused on which category they, they land in. I actually think every Christian should be in both categories. I think every Christian in some form or fashion
to serve one another in other practical, physical, uh, I shouldn't use the word practical, but more physical, addressing more physical needs. And so a lot of times people try to categorize themselves. So they, what's really going on a lot of times is they're trying to get out of do, doing one or the other. And so I'm sure I'm really gifted that way, right? You might not be gifted to stand up here and to deliver a sermon, but you can be gifted to speak God's word to someone in a private conversation. So those are the types of gifts, speaking God's word and serving God's people. And then Peter provides some instruction on how we use these gifts rightly. Because just like the Corinthian church, the misuse of spiritual gifts can create conflict within a church. And the conflict in the Corinthian church was that the exercise of spiritual gifts was about the individual purpose, the person. They were being selfish. They weren't using their gifts to serve other people. They were using their gifts to display their abilities, to draw attention to themselves, right? So when we think about using our gifts rightly, we have, to, we have to consider that we are stewarding God's grace, right? We have been entrusted. He uses the phrase there, as each one has received a gift, so everybody has gifts, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. That is, God's grace has great variety to it, and His varied grace has distributed a number of types of gifts to the church. And whatever gifts He has distributed to you, you are entrusted with that. And if you hold that gift back, and you don't develop it, and you don't employ it in service to other people, you're going to give an account to God. There's a parable about this, the parable of of the steward, right? He entrusts certain talents to these people, and one guy doesn't use any of them. He just buries it in the ground. And when Jesus comes back, it's not a pretty scene. And right, as a church, we don't create a lot of opportunities for you to serve. We have a few that are associated with our Sunday morning gathering. But by and large, we recognize your entire life as the sphere of ministry God's given to you. And we're more about equipping you to know how to wisely use that in the various spheres of responsibility God has given to you. And so a lot of times, sadly, I think churches miss this, that all their service is tied to something at the gathering. And we do have that, and we have a need for it. But by and large, what I'm more concerned is that you own this thing, that you are a steward of gifts God has given to you. Right? And you're going to give an account how you use that before Him. And so God's rule for our gifts is that we use them. And that with the confidence, we're using them with confidence that the resource to use them, whether it's words we need to speak or whether it's the strength we need to serve, God's going to supply the resource we need to carry out the use of that gift. And what we use up will be replenished by the God who has entrusted that gift to us. And sometimes, he doesn't really get into this, so this is more application. Sometimes the gifts change. Right? I've, I've talked with people sometimes where they feel like, well, this church really doesn't have a place for me to serve. Well, that's, that's bogus. Okay? That's just a lie. Right? And, and I'm not saying that person's lying. They, just are, they could be misunderstanding. But it, within a church, even our church, there are multiple needs in this church. Multiple needs. And so don't view your gift as, I need a place to put my gift on display. Look for a need and meet the need. And I can promise you there's not a church on the planet that doesn't have a need for your gifts. Right? But don't get so boxed into, I got this one gift and that's all. No. 
Look for needs, and when you see a need, go, well, you know, Seth, I don't necessarily feel called to do that. You are. (laughs) You're called to speak God's Word, and you're called to serve God's people. And when you come to that, what we tend to mean when we say, I'm not called to that, we say, I'm not comfortable doing that. Ah, comfortable. And why aren't we comfortable? Because we're not accustomed to doing it. We might have to rely on God's strength to do it. And that makes us uncomfortable. Because we're much more comfortable serving in areas where we've built up some self-confidence. I got this. I know how to do this. I've been doing it this many times. And that's where we never want to be. Sometimes God calls us to do things we're not equipped to do and comfortable to do because we're becoming self-reliant. And God wants us to push us into somewhere else. So he might even take a gift away and give you a new calling and give you a new gift to do it. When you see a need, you don't feel called to do it, ask God to equip you better and get to work. Because that's where God needs you serving in that moment. Because his gifts are gifts of grace to serve other people. I've had to do that. You know, there's certain things in ministry I don't like doing. I don't feel the strength in that. And it's like, okay, the Lord sends those things. It's like, you're ready, Seth. I'm ready to slay your pride. That's what he's about. He's pushing us into those areas where he's saying, rely on me. Try this. Let me expose your inadequacy so that you're reminded you need me for the words you need to speak and you need me for the strength you need to serve. We use our gifts rightly when we recognize we are a steward of God's grace. We use our gifts rightly when we recognize that God's calling to serve is oftentimes an opportunity to slay our pride. It's not about us. It's not about me being in the, in the lights and getting noticed. It's about meeting the needs of God's people because we love them. And then lastly, we use our gifts rightly... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever serves is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's an opportunity. Lord, you're telling me, Lord, if, if, if I recognize you giving me gifts and when I exercise them in a way to serve others, not to glorify myself, and when I use those gifts, not relying in my own strength and my own wisdom, but I speak your word and I serve your people, relying on you, that brings you glory. That's what he's saying. And the flip side is, when we don't do it that way, when we use our gifts for ourselves to display our wisdom and to display our giftedness, when we use our gifts in a way that we really don't need to rely upon God, and we don't use it to serve others, the result is that God is not glorified. Instead, we are being glorified. That's a problem. When Jesus returns, we want to be found serving other people. Not so caught up in selfishness that all we're thinking about in our lives is me, myself, and I. Peter's saying, the end of all things is a hand. The return of Christ is next on the agenda. When He comes, 
Be found serving others by praying with an awareness, by loving with grace, by welcoming people without grumbling, and by using your gifts to serve others in such a way that God is glorified by your service. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We're thankful for the instruction that you give to us and to see how practical and how relevant it truly is. Father, I pray that whatever the future holds that here sort of in the next few months or the next years, the next decades, that we as a church would never get so focused on reacting to all that's going on out there that we forget to serve one another. Lord, give this church a heart for each other. Lord, that, that, that we would truly experience heaven on earth. That we can with, retreat for moments from the world to, to be encouraged by being with a people who are aware of what's going on and, and even aware of that, that they're praying for one another. They're, they're, we're seeking to love one another. We're seeking to welcome one another and share what we have. And that, Lord, we're using the talents and gifts that you've given, not just for sole pursuit of ourselves, but to help each other. Father, I, that, that's a family. And, Father, we know that to be able to carry this out... To forget self and focus on others, Lord, is beyond our human ability. It takes a work of your grace. And Father, I'm thankful for that work you've begun in so many in this room. And Father, we ask that you would fan that more and more in each of our hearts. That we would not shy away from these opportunities that you've given to serve other people. But calling upon you... And looking for you, looking to you for the wisdom and the strength we need that we would run and embrace one another. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.